Okay, so um, next door is playing the guitar. Can you guys hear it? A little bit. A little bit of the bass. I think so, yeah. That's yeah. fine. No, we can't okay. do anything about right. it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could move. We'll make that part of our intro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have that be like the opening clip. Next door is playing a guitar, so... <laughs> Doctor, the podcast where we bring all three of us together very, very close and a huge amount of informational energy explodes out of us. Your introductions are always so violent. (laughs) (laughs) They're also very specific. (laughs) That was the best tagline I could come up with in the moment. Uh, My name is Beth and I am a PhD student studying particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. My name is Alistair, and I'm a PhD candidate in analytical chemistry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And I'm Sienna. I'm a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal. And we are the PhD 32B! Yay! Okay, guys. Um, today, we are talking about nuclear fusion. <gasps> okay, okay. Are you excited? We're going to make yes. some things here. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to make some things. This is exciting. I like nuclear physics. I think it's okay. really interesting. Okay. Um, does somebody want to give us a, f- a quick rundown into what nuclear fusion is? Yes, I do, because I do actually know the- what these two words mean. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so nuclear refers to nucleus, yep. which is the center of an atom, and it contains, you know, protons, neutrons... Gluons. Yep. Gluons. Yep, true. So that's the nucleus. So nuclear is just of nucleus. Fusion yep. is the fusing of things. So bringing them together from, yeah, I don't know where it's from. I don't know anything about linguistics. I was going to pretend, but I don't. Anyways, fusion, combine. Yep. So combining nucleuses. Yeah. Nuclei, I think that's sorry. a pretty good description. Alistair, do you want to add anything? No, um, if you want to know more about the nucleus of an atom, you can check out the episode I did on the atomic model. Um, And if you want to know more about nuclear things, you could check out our episode on nuclear magnetic resonance resonance imaging. Wow, Alistair, you're going to find a way to plug every single one of your episodes here, (laughs) aren't you? Plug every episode. Yeah, Yeah, but there's a really important one that he's missed out plugging. Plasma. Which is exactly the episode of Plasma. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I would have plugged. Cause yeah. Why? Because I know. Um, <laughs> Wait, why? Well, why is going to become clear in a minute. So So I already um, have a question. And this is... Okay. Um, well, you'll probably cover this. But, like, Sienna says that it's the, the melding together of atoms. Why would we want to Why would we want to smash atoms together? Um, I mean... From a particle physicist's point of view, that question doesn't make any sense because, of course, we want to smash things together. (laughs) But no, the real answer is that when you fuse two light elements, then you get a lot of energy out in the end. Right. Due to the binding energy per nucleus curve that we discussed, I think, in the Plasmas episode. 
Right. So basically, okay. up to iron, heavier nuclei are in an energetically favorable state compared to lighter nuclei. So if you smash them together and you manage to create a heavier nucleus out of two lighter ones, then you're going to release some energy in the process. And that mm. is what the experiment that we're going to be talking about today is trying to do. Cool. Um, does that answer your question now, sir? Yes. I kind of knew the answer already, but I just wanted to hear you say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, and it's an important point to base ourselves off. Um, another yeah. thing is I often confuse fusion and fission. And yep. fission is the thing that we haven't been able to achieve yet in the lab. Or we kind of have, but like it's really difficult. And that's the breaking apart of the atom, right? No. Oh. Yeah, well, yes. no and then yes. Fission mm -hmm. is the breaking apart of the atom, yes. But mm -hmm. it happens naturally. I mean, fusion to some extent happens naturally as well, but not on the Earth. But no, but in the sun. But in the sun and in stars and in supernovae and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But fission is the breaking apart of atoms either due, due to uh, natural radioactive decay or mm -hmm. um, due, mm -hmm. due to induced fission. Um, and that's what is that's what happens in nuclear power plants at the moment okay oh wow i thought oh okay i'm i'm all confused so can i ask a quick question yeah in nuclear power plants this is okay i'm i'm assuming this is a question based on my knowledge that energy is normally conserved and so you said that fusing two light and elements yep. produces energy good knowledge so does I'm assuming people fish and split heavy elements to produce energy. Yeah. What happens in nuclear power plants is that heavy elements are induced into fissioning. So, so they um, are made to split apart. And in that process, energy is released yeah. as well. Cool. Does that... That's yeah, that's kind of what I thought maybe would be happening. So you mentioned, yeah. Beth, that we're going to be talking about an experiment today. Uh, and I know that you interviewed yes. someone, so I'm really curious. What's the experiment? <laughs> Who did you interview? Yeah, okay. So, all right, let's get into the, um, as I've said before, the processed bean curd of the episode. Oh, like um, the meat, <laughs> but you're vegetarian. Uh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I am going to let her introduce her herself to you directly, but I'm going to give her a quick word of presentation. Okay. Um, so the person that I interviewed this week is my friend Alice, who I've known from university. She works in the European Commission Okay. about the ETA project, but I'll give her the chance to introduce herself more directly. I'm Alice Whitaker. I am a friend of yours from uni. We did physics together. <laughs> Oh, that's um, where I know you from. <laughs> yeah, right. Do, do you remember? <laughs> um, but while you went and did a, a master's and a PhD, I left uni and left physics effectively after my bachelor's. Um, and now I work in civil service. I work at the European Commission. Um, and my unit happens to take care of the contribution to the ETA project, the European contribution to the ETA project, um, which is a fusion experimental project so she's she's really not yet a doctor that's cool yeah yeah so she's not only not yet a doctor but she also has no intention <laughs> to ever be a doctor yeah 
and like I come back to talk about this a bit at the end um, but I think it's it's nice to hear a different voice on the podcast and I think it's nice to show some of the other things that you can do with a science degree totally mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. So she told me a bit about her job as well, if you guys are interested in what she actually does. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I, I have no idea what the ETA project is. Yeah. ETA? ETA? ETA. ETA. I-T-E-R. Eider. I-T-E-R? Yeah. I'd pronounce that Eider. Yeah, I'd pronounce that Eider. It sounds very Irish if you say it like that. Dialectical differences, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were saying, like, the Greek letter, Eta, or Eta. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. me too. E-T-A. Yeah. No, it's... I don't I know. know. Everyone I've ever heard of pronounces it This Eta, is a so. quick aside, but um, one of my friends was a shift manager at Weatherspoons in England, and um, he would say <laughs> that he, he had to do the, the rota a bunch of times. Like, he was like, oh, I gotta, gotta make the rota. Yeah. Yeah. And I always thought that... Rota. Yeah. I always thought that he was saying rotor because like, I don't yeah. know, it's like a shift thing, like <laughs> rotor, like, you know, motors, like a rotor is a thing that spins in a motor and like it's the shift change. And I thought he was saying R-O-T-E-R, oh, rotor. Yeah. And then we we somehow, I wrote it too. I texted it to him. I was like, oh, you got to do the rotor. And he was like, what? Do you, what? And I was like, the shift thing. And he's like, no, that's rota, R-O-T-A. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I would call it Rhoda, and he calls it Rhoda, but it, because of his British accent, like, oh, it was so funny. <laughs> so you assumed he was saying something else when he was actually saying the right, like, what you would have pronounced it as, too. Exactly. But what is a Rhoda? What's a Rhoda? It's just like a shift schedule. Like a sh- Oh, okay. Ro- oh, roster, like rotation guess, or roster. Would, roster, yeah. You'd maybe call it. I think it's, isn't it for rotation? Kind of, rota? yeah. Like, I, I think it has the same derivative, but, like, not yeah, rotor. Sure. It's rota. Like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so this is the Eider okay. Project. The Eider Project. This is the Eider <laughs> Project. And this is what Alice does for the Eider Project. Well, it's true that it's... I am not the usual profile that you find in civil service, and it's also not the usual kind of job that a physics graduate would have. So effectively the story is that when I was in uni, while other people were sort of gravitating to areas of physics that suited them, like for example, I know that you are more of a particle physicist, other friends of mine went to astrophysics and that sort of thing. I never really drifted towards any particular area of physics, but what I really enjoyed doing was writing as it turned out. I don't know if you remember, they used to get us to write an essay every yes, year. Yes, I really remember. <laughs> <laughs> we have and, different opinions on this. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was always like my favorite, my favorite <laughs> thing to do every year. And in final year, I wrote a literature review around a quantum key distribution, and that was really fun. So it was really when I was writing and when I could really put my energy into crafting lab reports and crafting really well-written documents that I really felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do. So when I left uni, I thought that I might try and go into something science adjacent, you know, where I could really use my communication skills and my writing skills. So not necessarily as a scientist, but something to do with science where I could really use that other skill and multiple skills. And I also wanted to use my languages and work abroad. Um, I speak French, and so living in Brussels here helps with that. 
and yeah. I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to work in a multilingual environment and that sort of thing so it is partly just luck that I ended up at the commission but I was also looking for jobs similar to mm-hmm. science in terms of what what I do specifically yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so ITA is a, a collaborative project between seven partners you have Eurotom, technically represented by the European Commission. You have the United States, you have China, Russia, Japan, Korea, and India. And uh, so the EU is the majority partner um, and the host because the machine is uh, um, located in France. So effectively what my unit does at the commission is we take care of delivering the European contribution, delivering on Eurotom's commitments as a member of the project Mm -hmm. in a global sense. Um, my job specifically is to do with communication and stakeholder relations, um, which is very broad, but then it's, it's a broad set of responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're kind of a science communicator by profession. Yeah, in effect, I managed to land exactly in the kind of job that I was aiming for. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, because like everybody who listens to the podcast knows, we are a science podcast and we focus on academic research and we mostly interview academics which is fine and I love it because I am an academic but like I think it's I think it really is interesting the range of things that you can do with a with a science degree. Mm. It's, it's definitely a different angle given you know as a holder of a bachelor's of physics academics isn't really open to me unless I do more study so my yeah. story is more someone who has a grounding in physics and uses that grounding and applies it to other jobs in other areas. So it is really a testament to how transferable a scientific background is. Uh, yeah, so that's um, her introduction to her job. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I love writing yeah. jobs. I also love writing, so it's really cool to hear about. Yeah, I think it's funny that uh, for her kind of, I don't know, final project, she wrote a literature review on, I don't even remember what, quantum keys or something? Quantum like, keys, geez, yeah. Jeez, that's... That's sounds yeah, I know. like fun for I her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about it as well. But like, um, yeah, I'm saying it again, but it's nice to think about. Um, it's also interesting to think about like these jobs exist and there are people doing them. So like, you know, for one of our big experiments and projects and things, there are people at the top doing mm. this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So really cool that she Alice has gotten involved with this project I'm still not clear on what the ETA ITER project is it has something to do with physics yeah so ETA in Latin means the way and Alice was saying how she likes this interpretation of the name more because um, it's kind of poetic to be the path away from fossil fuels and towards cleaner energy um, so hopefully I have a clip on ITER itself. So ITER stands for International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Okay. But it has a second meaning, which is that the word ITER in Latin means the way. Huh. So you can kind of see it in both ways. Okay. Um, personally, I prefer the slightly more abstract thing of the way because I think it encapsulates the project much better. I mean, ITER right. is above all, you know, the next step on the road to fusion power. Right. 
which is intended to take over from fossil fuels and uh, potentially some no, you're looking at me like I've got that completely. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. I mean, we are still, I mean, it's, it's still very much an experimental technology, you okay. know, and we are still not in the commercialized stage. So it's right. difficult to say at this point how fusion energy might work in a future energy mix. Okay. But uh, in general, I'd say there's general agreement that it will have its place mm -hmm. alongside renewables, possibly. Um, and it would really be useful to have as sort of a, a human controlled uh, method of climate friendly energy generation, which okay. I mean, we to need. me definitely has its place. Yeah. Okay. So it would be, it could potentially be, we hope that it will be one part of a cleaner energy future, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Right. I can expand on that if you like. Effectively, um, yeah, because fusion, I mean, people have been trying to create fusion on Earth since the 1930s, the 1950s, since a very mm -hmm. long time ago, um, almost since it was identified as the process that takes place inside the sun. Um, but it is very challenging to not necessarily to make it happen in a lab, I mean, it's, it's possible to create a plasma and to have fusion take place in a lab, but to create a machine, a device around that reaction that can then produce energy in a cost-efficient way, in a way that will not degrade the equipment immediately, in a way that will not produce ridiculous amounts of waste. It's, it's really an engineering issue to me, more mm -hmm. than a physics issue. Yeah. Um, just working out effectively how it would work to be able to convert this physical reaction into usable energy in a in a beneficial way so mm -hmm. it is uh i mean these days there are many many fusion devices all over the world that do experiments but we are not we have there are still some issues that we have to work out before you know building the first power plant that will create mm -hmm. electricity that can be used in in homes so yeah i'd say we're a generation at least away from that i kind of feel a little bit dumb but like <laughs> i guess a plasma is a fusion reaction <laughs> yeah. because you're bombarding argon into itself in an argon plasma um, i just i've never i never um, thought about a plasma as fusion so um i'm just gonna recap to give you guys a hint of what's going to be on the quiz at the end oh no <laughs> ETA stands for international thermonuclear experimental reactor mm -hmm. and the thermonuclear bit is important and that's kind of where the plasma bit comes in too mm -hmm. because it's true that if you fuse two light nuclei together so in ETA they usually use deuterium and tritium which mm -hmm. um, are two isotopes of hydrogen mm -hmm. yeah and it's true that if you fuse these two nuclei together, then you get helium and a neutron out, and um, you release a lot of energy, which is taken away mostly in the kinetic energy of the neutron. So you do get a lot of energy mm -hmm. out of it, but you also have to put a lot uh -huh. of energy in to overcome yeah, yeah. the fact that these are ions and they obviously have the same electric charge and therefore they're gonna repel each other. And that's a, like the electromagnetic force is a strong force. 
Yeah. So you have to overcome all of that and then get them close enough and mm-hmm. and in such conditions that they are going to fuse together in order for them to actually fuse and, and uh, create this energy. Mm-hmm. Not create energy, but release the energy. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have to have a plasma so that you can accelerate them together and um, mm-hmm. get them together nice and closely and that's why it has to be so hot is firstly to create the plasma but more importantly to give the nuclei enough kinetic energy to overcome the the coulomb force mm-hmm. the um, electromagnetic repulsive right. force. right yeah okay so does that make sense yeah, yeah. so plasma is not actually fusion which kind of yeah that makes sense i was dumb earlier in saying that but plasmas are great vessels for shooting nuclei at each other at high speeds and temperatures yeah which is pretty cool in itself to be fair Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. probably also because they're a sea of electrons right yeah the plasma is is this Mm -hmm. kind of sea of electrons that the nuclei float around it i don't know honestly whether the electrons were already stripped before the uh, plasma gets injected into the chamber or whether the i don't really know what happens to the electrons Mm -hmm. in all honesty but yeah, that's how fusion is done in basic terms. Cool. So in that clip, we talked a bit about whether fusion would take over from fossil fuels and what its role would be mm-hmm. in the future of energy for mm-hmm. humans. So I've got a clip on that if you guys want yeah. to hear. Yes, yes, absolutely. It could really have its place alongside renewables because... Yeah. One thing about renewable sources of energy is that they tend to be quite um, local. Mm-hmm. You know, for hydroelectric energy, you need a water river next to Yeah, exactly. For for solar energy, you need the sun to shine. And okay, the sun shines all over the world, but you know, yeah, the, very. I mean, the other two, I'm from the UK. The other two are from Canada. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> exactly. We know Whereas... something about a lack of sunshine. <laughs> Yeah, whereas, I mean, in the theory, uh, a more advanced fusion power plant that could produce electricity on the grid mm-hmm. doesn't have those uh, limits so much, mm-hmm. you know. You could, in theory, sort of build it anywhere. You can switch it on and off when you need. You could, you know, have it next to a city and provide sort of the baseline energy for the city. And then Top there, there are all sorts of considerations like yeah. that. I mean, I'm not a... I'm not a policy expert on energy, but uh, this is this is one area in which it really makes sense to yeah to to make fusion happen as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. I I love this idea that we're reimagining where we can get our energy sources from, um, because if you think about it, like oil and gas is also very local. Mm-hmm. You don't have oil and gas reserves all around the world. There's certain places in the world mm-hmm. where there are no. large stores of them and they are mined and extracted there and yeah. shipped around the world. And we just have kind of a, an infrastructure for getting that energy globally around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. For the most part. Obviously, there are areas that are... I mean, equally, like, deuterium comes from seawater mostly mm-hmm. and tritium mm-hmm. has to be produced um usually from lithium i think because oh. uh if you cause lithium to, to undergo fission then you get tritium out mm. of it i believe so like you would also have to have infrastructure to take those 
sort of resources, those raw materials from where they naturally occur to where you want to use mm-hmm. them mm. Um, in the right timescales. But I think one of the most important things that we're coming to think about is just diversifying our um, mm-hmm. energy sources. Totally, yeah. And I think, I mean, yeah. I don't know, I'm, maybe Alice, Alice probably knows a lot more than me about this, um, but currently our renewable resources, uh, you know, hydroelectric, solar, and wind... Uh, being the main ones and geothermal geothermal, well (laughs) i'm thinking mainly of solar and wind are as i understand it quite Mm -hmm. inefficient like you need a lot of solar panels to kind of be on all the time Mm -hmm. to get a very small amount of energy compared to what you could burn in coal so to have i don't know how efficient fusion is but i just think it sounds like it would be more efficient it would give off a lot more energy than like per unit of mass or things like that it would be more efficient yeah um i don't have the numbers on me at the moment um but like fusion would release a huge amount of energy Mm. the efficiency would then depend on how well you're able to capture it yeah which Um, is the exact same problem we already have with solar panels yeah with a lot the efficiency hasn't (laughs) efficient well we're trying to capture nuclear fusion energy with solar panels really I mean, yeah, I guess. I'm also, yeah, I think, so this is, I'm not an expert either, but I think with renewables, the storage is a bigger problem than the production. Um, I think that, like, for example, my parents have solar voltaics on the roof of their house, Mm -hmm. and when the sun's shining, they can pretty much power their house completely from the solar voltaics, and sometimes they even manage to send energy back to the grid. Mm -hmm. Um, no. But when the sun isn't shining, then, you know, no can do kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so that is essentially how people are hoping that the role of future, the ho- the role of fusion will, will shape our future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have been talking a lot about fusion and ether and stuff without talking in detail about how fusion works. So here is Alice explaining how fusion happens in ITER. So effectively, um, ITER is a tokamak. um, And the tokamak is a concept that was invented by two Russian scientists. um, And it's a Russian word that stands for toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. And so effectively, the defining feature of a a tokamak is that it's toroidal. Which that means is the, donut shaped. Which means donut shaped. American donuts. Yeah, okay, tire shaped. I like that more. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, a defining feature of the tokamak is that the plasma inside is toroidal. That is mm-hmm. donut shaped, tire shaped, bagel shaped. Um, and so pretty much the, the raison d'etre of the machine is to confine and to heat and to make maintain this plasma, this donut-shaped plasma. Mm-hmm. And the plasma is made of two different isotopes of hydrogen, which is deuterium and tritium. Um, and effectively, as opposed to the proton-proton fusion that happens in the sun, it's deuterium-tritium fusion. They come together and they produce helium and a fast neutron. Mm-hmm. So this neutron has very high kinetic energy. And because magnetic fields are being used to confine the plasma, the neutron being neutral and therefore not affected by magnetic fields can fly out of the plasma and hit the wall of the chamber that the plasma is in. Mm -hmm. So 
effectively the plasma is inside a chamber that we call the vacuum vessel because it's well besides the plasma it's a vacuum and uh, the walls of the vacuum vessel are covered with blanket modules um, in ITER there will be I believe 420 blanket modules I looked up some numbers this morning just to check 440 blanket modules covering mm -hmm. a, an area of 600 square meters. Blimey, that's a lot of square meters. <laughs> right? And um, so these blanket modules have pipes in them through which cold water is pumped. Okay. And so as the neutrons hit the blanket modules, their kinetic energy is converted into heat. The heat transfers to the water and the water is carried away or un once it's been heated up, it's steam. And then uh, it can be used in theory in the future to make electricity through traditional methods. Mm -hmm. um, so much like, you know, other power plants, the goal is to turn water into steam. But uh, it's just where that heat comes from. And in this case, the heat would come from the fusion reaction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you get deuterium and tritium, which are two isotopes of hydrogen and you stick them together and they make helium and they get rid of a neutron mm. and the neutron escapes and it heats up some water in the walls of the of the thing mm -hmm. and then when the water heats up it makes steam and then the steam turns the turbine and hey presto you've got electricity in theory in theory <laughs> of course okay. the eater won't have that whole um system to make electricity because it's an experimental machine okay um, so in in Eta's case, I believe the, the water will be sent to a cooling system um, made of very, you know, long pipes and all sorts of big, what are they called, big pools of water um, to dissipate the heat into the air. Okay. Um, but in theory, the next generation of machines, if we were to use electricity, um, the hot water slash steam would then be used to make electricity. Okay. I think it's really interesting that in a lot of like most modes of energy generation, we use water. Like, yeah. and if you're curious about water, <laughs> you can check out our episode on Oxidane for some really cool things. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's really interesting that in nuclear power plants and in this theoretical potential fusion power plant, but also I think in, in, gas and oil and coal plants cool yeah. this is how yeah. coal plants work yeah you, you create <laughs> yeah. steam and drive a pump like it's yeah yeah it's just really interesting to me that we use water in almost all of our also geothermal energy. heating is Geo energy yeah. productions dependent on water yeah and and obviously yeah. hydroelectric dams it's a bit different you just use the water directly but, but still like, water still water <laughs> um it's still water i don't know about solar and wind um, I think those are, yeah, they've got their own systems in place, right? Yeah, because I think... But you, a wind turbine yeah, wind. is practically a, <laughs> a steam turbine, right? Like, it's, Yeah, it's just, yeah. Similar ideas, different different thing pushing. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it uses the, the magnets directly. It's just being pushed by something that isn't steam. Yeah. And yeah. it makes sense why water um, is used, right? Like, it has this high heat capacity yeah. and so you can store mm -hmm. a lot of energy in water to then mm -hmm. be released yeah. as mechanical mm -hmm. kinetic energy yeah. later yeah mm -hmm. and it's it's, yeah. you know, it's non-toxic it has all these great mm -hmm. properties how many of my episodes can um, i plug 
<laughs> so yeah, like she says, um, Eater is still an experimental machine. So like, mm-hmm. people have been trying to make to generate energy from fusion for a very long time, mm-hmm. but we haven't managed yet to get more energy out than we put in. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Like, it sounds yeah like there's probably a lot of electricity used to produce the plasma. So it's like the first thing you need to do is get enough of those neutrons flying at the water to produce enough electricity to power the plasma. Yeah, but like her point is that. Eater isn't trying to be a power plant. It's not trying to generate that mm-hmm. um, proof of design. It's trying to demonstrate proof of principle that you can get more energy out of mm-hmm. your fusion, out of your plasma through fusion, than you put into your plasma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we haven't proved that so, so far. We haven't proved that so far. The closest we've come to is uh, using the joint european taurus in cullum in oxfordshire in the uk mm-hmm. which has achieved like 0.6 or 0.7 i think which is the value of q which is the energy out of the plasma divided by the energy yeah. into the plasma. so that's like pretty much like the percent it would be like 60 percent. yeah exactly of yeah of the energy that goes into the plasma mm-hmm. because you got 60 um, percent out as we'll come on to talk about there are also other energy costs that that are involved but um i wanted to so i wanted to use the opportunity of talking to alice to talk a bit about engineering which is something we don't very often talk about on the podcast Mm -hmm. so here's some clips about the design and the the engineering involved in eta when you look at eta i mean when it's finished when you look at eta it will not just be a little donut shaped chamber it will be a huge what's the word yeah, I mean, like a machine mm-hmm. covering, I mean, it'll be six stories high and really gigantic. So there are a lot of various systems dedicated to making sure that the plasma is created properly and is confined properly and that it doesn't uh, dissipate. So if we work maybe from from the inside out, from the chamber out, yep. effectively behind, like outside the vacuum vessel, you have several kinds of magnets. You have them inside the vessel as well, but the main magnet systems are outside. So you have three main kinds of magnets that provide the uh, provide the magnetic field that holds the plasma. You have poloidal field coils, which are also donut shaped, um, but very thin, and they go around the outside and the inside of the of the donut. They look like circles, like horizontal circles. Okay. Then you have the toroidal field coils, which are D shaped. And they go around. Well, how to how to put it? I'm I'm gesturing. <laughs> <laughs> they go from like the hole to the exactly. out. They like are a loop around the like if you held your bagel on a string. Yeah. That would be kind of the idea. Of yeah. If you looped a string through your bagel and then you sort yeah. of suspended it. Yeah. <clears throat> it would follow a similar uh, path <laughs> to the to the toroidal field coils. And so you have um, nine of those. And then you have in the middle, the central solenoid, um, which is just a column of magnets. It's actually not one magnet, it's uh, several put together. And effectively, when all of these magnets are on, and some of them have constant current and some of them have alternating current, they combine to produce effectively a closed magnetic field, a magnetic bottle. 
and a twisting magnetic field that goes around the surface of the of the donut-shaped magnetic bottle, if that makes sense. Yeah, so effectively it's the magnet's job to create the plasma, to confine it, and in some cases to reduce instabilities. Because when a plasma exists, you have to make sure that it doesn't touch the walls of the chamber, you have to make sure that it doesn't lose too much energy. So there are some magnet systems and some adjustments adjustments you can make to the magnetic fields to avoid that happening effectively. If you see that the plasma is moving a little bit close to a wall in one area, then you adjust the magnets to make sure that it's all in the right place. So one big issue with having these magnets is that in order to make them efficient, they are made of superconducting material. Well, it's quite the feat of engineering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about my first year physics and the right hand rule, where if you have a, a magnet, no, yes, you have a magnet, a field, and then the field magnetic goes field, one way yeah. and then the, the flux goes in proportion to that yep. magnetic field. So I was just trying to think about, Yeah. I mean, obviously the engineers that are much smarter than me have worked this all out, but like if you want to get a donut shape of a plasma you have to create Mm -hmm. fields in you know the the donut direction but then also in that's why there's all these magnets and i was just trying to think it all through doing my thumbs up and down so i've got i've got a um diagram that i will show you guys and it's gonna become quite useful in a minute (laughs) so this is what eta looks like essentially and so just for scale what we're looking at is six stories high yeah it's wow um 29 meters by 29 meters i think like 29 meters high by 29 meters in diameter it's big 150 Um, million degrees celsius that sounds about right uh which is pretty warm it's several times the um, (laughs) temperature of the surface of the sun wow um and that's on earth so like that's on earth (laughs) Yeah, no, we'll come on to talk about this in a sec, um, because it's it's mind-blowing what they are doing. Yeah. Um, no wonder you don't so want to touch yeah, the like edge I, of the wall. Well, right, so then so then I've got some um, clips about the magnet stuff, which mm-hmm. is incredible, because you guys know at the end of that clip, Alice was talking about superconductors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what superconducting magnets are right kind of basically they're a type of magnet that are made in such a way that when they are cooled down to very very low temperatures like zero degrees kelvin Mm -hmm. um as close i mean we can't achieve that but like very 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 cold um they have no loss like they're frictionless and like Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool properties that would. These are you... like the floating magnets. Yeah, like the ones that you, that see, you see. Like it's this like smoking mm-hmm. little magnet. And it zips around a track forever yeah. because there's no friction. Yeah. Um, yeah um, I'm not explaining this very well, but. But the important point is that they have no resistance. So you send an electric current through your through your wire mm-hmm. to create a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. And this wire, if you cool it down really cold, then it has zero electro- electrical resistance. Okay. It's interesting. Can I just say it's interesting to know yeah. what the word cryostat means? Because this means very specifically to me a machine that we use to cut sections of tissue. 
but huh, I, interesting. here it says a huge okay, refrigerator talks, surrounding the vacuum vessel and i'm like oh yeah, that makes yeah, sense she talks about this <laughs> i use huge um, refrigerators around my cutting vessels <laughs> for <a> tissue <laughs> that's what it means yeah so all of that is in this clip here okay. Superconductors, if we take a step back, a superconducting material is one that has zero resistance below a certain temperature. Unfortunately, those temperatures tend to be very low, especially the ones that are superconducting materials that are available tend to really only be superconducting at very, very low temperatures. So in the case of ITER, it's these magnet systems can be cooled as low as four Kelvin or That's minus really 269 <laughs> degrees Celsius. It's very, very cold. And they're cooled using pressurized helium gas. So you have to cool these magnets down and you have to make sure that they don't get warmer while the tokamak is in operation. But in, in theory, if that all works out, then you have zero resistance magnets that can produce gigantic magnetic fields, enough mm -hmm. to combine a very large plasma. And the issue really with having magnets that are cooled to four, four Kelvin is of course that the plasma inside the chamber is very, very hot, is yes. at 150 million degrees Celsius which is several times the temperature of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you really have to shield between the magnets and the, and the plasma. So really there are two main ways of doing this. And the main way is using the cryostat, which encases the entire machine. It's effectively the, the last layer, the layer that you'll see if you're looking at it. And the so cryostat, cryostat means something that's very cold, right? Yeah, generally cryo means something that's very cold. Okay. But that's not really, I mean, it's, it's difficult to explain because it's not so much a cool box. It's not so much something that creates cold as something that creates a vacuum. And the vacuum is an insulator. Retains cold. Okay. Exactly. Well, it keeps cold things cold and keeps hot things hot. <laughs> um, Just don't put your uh, ice cream in your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> exactly i mean some describe it as like a as like a thermos flask okay but honestly when i was first learning about ita that kind of confused me because people said it was a thermos flask so i was imagining a big flask with vacuum walls right but actually it, the the vacuum is inside all of the flask okay so the the point of the cryostat is to create a vacuum inside it in all okay. the components that are inside it. It's very different from my cryostats, <laughs> which yeah. I reach into all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to say, Beth, uh, shame on you for shaming people for liking affogato. That's, uh, I think, a sin in Italy. <laughs> yeah, true. also, that's espresso true. on ice cream. Oh, that's true. Yes, combine the coffee and ice cream. Combine it. Yeah, don't put, don't put ice cream in your coffee. Beth. The joke was, I don't know if you've ever heard, heard this joke, um, a blonde walks into work with her thermos flask mm -hmm. and somebody says, oh, what's that? She says, oh, it's the thermos flask. It keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. And um, the, the other person asks her, what, what's, in your, what's in your thermos flask? She says, oh, um, a cup of coffee and an ice cream. Oh, uh, okay, I get it because... That's the joke. The blonde um, thinks that it's keeping them both to, to, yeah, at their yeah. respective temperatures. Speaking as a blonde, I reject this stereotype, but um, 
if you uh, say it about your little brother or sister. I don't have a little brother or a little sister. I've only got a big one, but um, <laughs> I think in that case you can you can probably make it work. Anyway, uh, I'm sparing you the uh, discussion that I then had with Alice trying to get my head around how this Christ actually worked. But like, mm-hmm. it sounds like it just keeps everything under vacuum. Right. So I think if you look at the this diagram again, it makes it a bit clearer mm-hmm. that like. The point is that everything is inside the cryostat and everything is in vacuum. Well, it makes sense. Like, obviously, if we, with our thermoses, the reason why the vacuum is in the walls is because typically, like, when your thermos is closed, the lid is doing a pretty good job, but the walls are doing a really good job of keeping your liquid whatever temperature it is. Yeah. But you need to access that liquid. You want to drink it. So, of course, you can't keep it in the vacuum itself. But if you could keep it in the vacuum itself, that'd be a much more effective way of keeping it hot or cold. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the vacuum is so effective at keeping things hot or cold is there's no loss to the environment. Like, there's no way... Because heat transfer, temperature is just kinetic energy transfer of the energy of molecules. Convection... Conduction to convection radiation. Yeah, and so because... So you get rid of... You get rid of conduction and convection in a, ve- in a vacuum, mm-hmm. and you're left with radiation, which Alice does go on to talk about. But, um... So I... I Before I looked at... She drew me a diagram, and now I've got this one that I, I'm showing you. Before I saw that, I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that everything, everything in the tokamak is in vacuum. Mm-hmm. And this chamber, it's 16,000 meter cubed um, of vacuum. Wow. 16,000 meters cubed, which is a... Must take a lot of energy to produce. Big volume to evacuate, yeah. Yeah. I remember watching a clip from a documentary series. It was a a BBC documentary series um, about vacuums or something, about gravity. I don't remember what it was about, but it was a clip from it. And they dropped... Okay. a bowling ball and a feather in a vacuum and yeah. if you drop a bowling ball and a feather in north like off the leaning tower of pisa you know the famous experiment or whatever um yeah, they yeah, fall yeah. at different rates because of air resistance and the feather floats down yeah. and the bowling ball plummets mm-hmm. but if you drop them both in a vacuum mm-hmm. they both fall at exactly the same rate because there is no air resistance and to demonstrate this they went to this big mm-hmm. it was probably six stories high vacuum and they, actually it's where they test space it was the european space agency where they test space components Mm -hmm. in vacuum and so they evacuate this huge chamber and then drop a bowling ball and a feather and you watch it fall at exactly the same rate the whole way down um it's a really cool clip and maybe we'll we can link it on our social media or in the sources or something i'll find it um yeah it's but yeah just thinking about evacuating that chamber thinking about like how what i do our, our mass spectrometer part of it is under vacuum and it's not okay. under a perfect vacuum it's very hard to create a, a complete vacuum yeah i mean this isn't mm-hmm. perfect so, either i can't i think i've got the statistics yeah, to evacuate a whole like building <laughs> essentially of all the air Pretty much <laughs> yeah all the matter that's in it we've seen how how hard it can be to evacuate a building all the people <laughs> during a fire drill, yeah. so. <laughs> Now try and get the yeah. air to leave. Yeah, it's ten to the minus four pascals. Yeah, that's uh, wow. Which I don't have very much scale for how good a vacuum is, but I'm assuming it's a very good vacuum. That's pretty good. I think we achieved ten mm-hmm. to the minus six in our 
But obviously we have okay. a smaller, like the vacuum chamber is only the size of like a, a bread box. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we have like... a bread box size vacuum chamber in my lab too. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious have... how they do this because I know a bunch about vacuum pumps. But anyway. Oh, yeah. really? I didn't go into that much detail. The only thing that I know about vacuums is my vacuum cleaner in the other room. Also a vacuum. Um, How good is that vacuum? (laughs) Probably not 10 to the minus 4 pascals. Wait, is a vacuum actually a vacuum? I mean, it It creates... It creates a differential. Yeah. But I don't think it actually creates a vacuum. Yeah. Because it's sucking. So it's... well, because you... I mean, like, you're never going to achieve a perfect vacuum anyway, so then how are you going to define vacuum if not by a pref- pressure differential? But to be fair, if you hooked if you hooked up your vacuum to a enclosed thing and somehow had a way of preventing the walls from breaking yeah, right, yeah, yeah. and collapsing, then you could I guess I... create a vacuum. Like, the, vac- the vacuum is doing the job of the vacuum right. pump. Yeah, yeah. The reason why you don't create a vacuum is because... You normally not doing it in an enclosed space, but that's how you vacuum seal stuff, yeah, yeah, right? Like definitely, yeah. it's all the same concept. Yeah, it's all the same concept. Okay, so I have another clip about this kind of stuff. Okay. Um, of course, if everything's under a vacuum, then everything has to be airtight. Yeah. And producing these gigantic pieces of metal and welding them together in a way right. that is completely airtight and that you won't have any leaks is well, and then you've got real a huge, feat of engineering. And then you've got a huge pressure difference between the vacuum and the outside world. So you have to make Absolutely. sure your materials are strong enough to withstand that. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Because I, yeah, you, you need really strong materials, but I'm also thinking about, and this is kind of the opposite effect, but an aluminum can is a really interesting feat of engineering because it has mm-hmm. to hold yeah. pressurized liquid, like pressurized yeah. gas, yeah. and it does it really, really well. But then after you break that seal and normalize the pressure, aluminum cans are very thin and mm-hmm. not flimsy, but like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you can crush them with yeah. your forehead. <laughs> Don't try um, that at home. When I was at school... Um, we used to do this. I told you guys before that I was in science club because that's the kind of cool kid that I was. Yeah. Um, and we used to do this experiment where you'd put a little bit of water in the bottom of a tin can and you'd heat it up over a Bunsen burner yeah. and you'd let the water turn to steam and then suddenly you'd take it off the Bunsen and you'd stick it into a bucket of cold water and it would implode from the pressure difference. Um, which just goes to prove mm-hmm. your point, Alistair, about how flimsy they are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. like, this would need to be built of something thicker walls than an Sturdier aluminum can, than, but really, yeah. just talking about, like, withstanding pressure and sturdiness, like, uh, aluminum cans, tin cans, yeah. um, are really good at this, but are also very efficient. Like, th- we're talking about efficiency a lot in this episode, but, like, they're very, you know, they don't use a lot of mm-hmm. aluminum, or aluminium, if you're from that Which region of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this, she mentioned at the beginning, I think, that um, the vacuum is only one way that they cool their magnets mm-hmm. and they keep them cold. Um, because, as I said, convection and conduction are stopped by the vacuum, but radiation isn't. 
So I have a mm-hmm. clip about radiation blankets. What are the because others? I, I said that there were two. So the main way, really, that the you know the four Kelvin magnets are insulated from the 150 million degrees C plasma oh is um, and and remember this is only over you know a couple of meters. It's yeah. it will be pretty much the the steepest gradient of temperature in the universe. Wow. So yeah, one way is with the vacuum because uh-huh. vacuums are good insulators. But of course, vacuums do not insulate against radiation heat transfer. So the, the solution here is that in addition to the, to the vacuum, you have in between the magnets and the chamber, the thermal shield. In fact, all the way wrapped all the way around the magnets, you have the thermal shield. Okay. And the thermal shield is cooled to minus 193 degrees by pressure okay. helium gas. And it surrounds the magnets and it's coated on both sides with a silver coating. So I imagine it looks very futuristic. Yeah. Parts of the thermal shield have already been um, manufactured, so you can see them. And uh, yeah, so that is really the other line of defense, really. Effectively, this shield that is not as super cooled as the magnets, but is very much cooled. And that effectively helps the magnets stay cool reduces transfer as much as possible. I was thinking about this earlier. A cold blanket. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier when she said that the, the magnets are cooled to 4 Kelvin and the plasma is at 150,000 Celsius. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking this is probably the largest temperature gradient in the world. And then she said the universe. And I kind of realized that, yeah, like, yeah. As, we, as far as we know, because who knows what goes on inside mm-hmm. of a black hole, but well, uh, <laughs> but like um, it's the largest temperature gradient over the shortest amount of distance in the universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it, is... It's so cool. Like that, I, 150 I, million degrees Celsius. Sorry, 150 yeah. million degrees Celsius. Yeah. I was off by a few <laughs> factors of a thousand. No, I was off <laughs> by a factor of a thousand. Um, Hotter than the sun, as yeah. cold as space. Yeah. They're using a lot of helium. I think it's really interesting that this yeah. process of uh, combining deuterium and tritium creates helium, but then they're using helium mm-hmm. yeah. to cool the magnets and cool the thermal shields. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Another really interesting thing that I saw, um, which Alice didn't talk about, but I saw it when I was doing my own research a bit before talking to her, was that, like I said before, you create tritium usually from lithium Mm -hmm. because you can find it naturally but it has a very very short half-life so it's very difficult to find in enough quantities but one of the things that they do in I think they do it in jet if I remember correctly but at least in some tokamaks they've lined the tokamak with lithium to be their to be their blanket to be their heat absorbing blanket also so that when the neutrons pass through then they'll like um, heat up the lithium and then the, that will be connected to water in the walls and blah 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 like, like we said before so that's how the heat will get absorbed but when the neutrons mm-hmm. hit the lithium they will turn it to, or some of it at least will get turned into tritium and then if you can extract that mm. then you can use that again in your reactor Mm. which is a nice mm. um, nice use of materials. Mm-hmm. Because, like, one yeah. thing that I would like to say is that, like, I got the idea for this episode from having conversations with friends about fusion recently and stuff and about how, like, 
it is a really clean method of energy production, which it is because you don't have carbon dioxide released um, through doing it. You don't have nuclear waste that you have to deal with. But like it's still true of any energy production of anything that you create, essentially, that you have to find raw materials and use them and you run the risk of creating nasty things when you like in the process of creating your energy and stuff which like is also true in and worse in cold coal power stations and that kind of thing but like it's just to say that we also have to be careful about not thinking that creating new or finding new ways to generate energy will absolve us from cutting back on our energy usage i think yeah, yeah I mean- and i mean also then the other the other thing i was thinking of with regards to this and is like a thing you think of also with regards to other forms of ener- clean energy industry is that the mining industry and especially mining of rare these types of elements like lithium can be incredibly ineth- like unethical yeah. as well right like it exploits resources from countries and uses like sometimes like labor that is not fairly compensated or ethical so Mm -hmm. there's that too with lithium mining in particular but i think also mining for solar panels and i i think lithium is in batteries as well which is why it's again you buy an electric car and you think you're doing something good for the world but the lithium in the battery is and it was incredibly right. unethical to produce usually yeah. I, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I, these things are very yeah helium is also a, a precious resource like it's we have a yeah. finite amount of yeah. helium yeah. in the world and the, and kind of the fact that we use it for party balloons is uh, a bit absurd considering how <laughs> valuable it is for research um i yeah. also wanted to say i attended a talk by the philosophy department it was a colloquium so like a colloquium but it was just for jokes mm-hmm. And they were just fun talks that these philosophy majors were, were making. And one of them was Aww. that because there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, the only ethical consumption under capitalism is cannibalism. And it was this guy advocating <laughs> that instead of eating meat, we should eat the rich. Eat the rich. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. It was so funny. I've seen that argument made on TikTok, too. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Anyway, Doesn't but sound very good for you. What you're saying, Sienna, kind of makes me think about that, that like, under capitalism, nothing is ethical, no matter what I mean, we do. I mean, yeah. Like, you, that's why it's so hard to be a private citizen and to try and do your best for the environment and for the people who live in it. Because, like, often in the world that we live in, those two things come into conflict. Yeah. But I certainly think there's also, like, more and less ethical things you can do sure, in the for sure. unethical society we live in and like when I think about just this makes me think a lot of that article that you presented Alistair where you make a battery energy out of a cabbage sandwich <laughs> and it's like using even though it doesn't produce as much energy or isn't as efficient and maybe is like not super um you know it's not it's not gonna power a city it's like these small local ways of producing energy actually might be the most ethical and useful especially if we're reducing our energy consumption anyways right because like if we as private citizens learn how to live with less energy then we also then don't need incredible amounts of resources that are hard to obtain and like usually not ethically obtained 
And instead, we can just make ourselves a cabbage sandwich out of, like, cabbage we grow and bread we make and get a battery. And yeah, it's not super efficient, but then we eat it in the end. Like, that to me is, like, a very ethical energy production. your own food is not a very efficient way of producing I think I think, you know, we we can try our best and do do the best we can and, like... I think yeah, diverse. No, I, I think on a global scale, I think it's important to diversify our energy resources. Diversify and localize. I think mm-hmm. diversify, localize, and minimize. <laughs> our Reduce, reuse, recycle, and repair. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alice, coming back to the discussion we were having earlier about um, the energy that you can get out of these machines, this is what Alice has to say. Something that you have to be careful about when you're talking about these projects is the difference between the energy into the thermal energy into the plasma and thermal energy out of the plasma and energy total into the machine over energy out of the plasma. You see what right. I mean? Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it can be very difficult if you're not precise to, to, to be clear about what exactly you mean. Yeah. So in terms of energy thermal energy out of the plasma over thermal energy into the plasma, effectively this comes to the question of a burning plasma. And so a burning plasma is one in which the thermal energy from the fusion reaction is significant, is sufficient to sustain the temperature required for the reaction to continue. So effectively a self-sustaining reaction. Yeah. So I mean, in, in an ideal situation, in one in which you could create fusion energy you wouldn't need to be constantly heating the plasma. Okay. Yeah, because it would be heating itself. Exactly. With the, the neutrons that are with some of the neutrons that are released from the mm-hmm. uh, from fusion. Some of them would escape and heat your heat your turbines and whatever your your steam, your water, your water to in become the steam to turn the turbines, and some of them would stay in the plasma to keep heating the plasma. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's my understanding. Again, okay. this is where it gets very scientific and it's not my area of expertise, but um, that's that's the idea. Okay. My point is that, you know, when you have a burning plasma, you have, I mean, the goal here is to produce, is to produce a Q factor of at least one. Right. That is where the energy coming out of the plasma, thermal energy coming out of the plasma is equal or greater to the thermal energy that you need to put into it to have the fusion reaction happen. Okay, right, into the plasma. Mm. Okay. I mean, the in terms of running all the other systems, running all the supporting systems, that is other energy. Yeah. But um, when people talk about the Q factor and Q equals one or Q equals 10, okay. that is what they're talking about. Okay. A Q of one won't be enough to get um energy efficient fusion because you'll then have a lot of other energy that you have to put into cooling the magnets turning on everything doing this and that um exactly so it's really not as simple as just you know getting well q of above one really because that's where you actually start making energy right yep but then again that is also a question of how future fusion power plants might be designed because okay. that really comes into the design of the plants. At this point, we're really, I mean, ITER is an experimental machine. All the other machines around the world are experimental. The experimental objectives are really centered around the plasma 
and mm -hmm. about around creating a burning plasma and creating the reaction. Once that is sort of under everyone's belt, then, you know, the design can be refined. I'm still not clear what a burning plasma is, but just as a someone that works with plasmas, it bothers me calling I don't want to call it a burning plasma because plasmas don't burn in the yeah. sense of like it's yeah. not an oxidation reaction. Yeah, we had this this discussion in the plasma episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like and I totally get like what Alice is saying makes sense. Like it's a it's a self just self-sustaining yeah. plasma and it, yeah. that's the terminology that she uses and it's probably yeah. used more widely in yeah. in the industry. Like I'm not I'm not a plasma yeah, physicist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just as someone who like mm -hmm. has learned about plasmas and learned yeah. about their processes, I was kind of like it hit home for me that like it's not a burning, it's not a flame, yeah. it's not fire. Yeah. Yeah, plasmas yeah, yeah. are plasmas. Like it's an ionized gas. It's very yeah. <laughs> so. Need some flexibility in your thinking there. No, I will be inflexible. <laughs> in how we use language. Um, I like the same thoughts came to my mind when she said it, but like obviously that's a dragon and um, yeah. I, I, that's fine. Alistair, you take your crusade to the plasma physicists. So. No, I'm not going to. I'm. I. It's a. Per, it's a personal thing that I'm going to work through and you know change my language. Good. We love to see growth. Um, so I was gonna like. So I guess it must be theoretically possible to produce this, right? Like that's why we're pursuing it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know much about the theory or. I don't, I don't even know very much about how you put heat into a plasma. But certainly the idea, I think, is that if you can set it going, like this idea of the burning plasma is that if you can set it going and if you can trap some of that mm -hmm. heat that comes out, then you can use the heat created from one fusion reaction to produce another fusion reaction. And, mm -hmm. like, you keep going like that, and that's how you manage to... Um, mm -hmm get more energy out than you're putting in um, yeah like I think I think the thing is that like it starts from the fundamental mathematics physics that um, this fusion reaction produces more energy than it takes to do yeah exactly. if you can create like smash together deuterium and tritium tritium yep yeah mm -hmm. it will give you more energy out than you have put in mathematically on paper and then yeah. we say, okay, how can we create this? Well, we need a plasma. Okay, how do we create the plasma? Well, mm -hmm. you need yeah. to put energy in to create this plasma. Well, how right. can we reduce the amount of energy that we need to put in to create the plasma to create the reaction? Right. And so, you know, we use super cool, we, they use super cool ma magnets and like this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not at a, I don't know what the Q is, but it's not at a Q of one yet. But yeah. Well, Beth said it was a Q of 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.7. Yeah, right. so Q is the energy out of the plasma divided by the energy into the plasma. So mm -hmm. that's exactly what Alastair was saying, that, like, in theory, mm -hmm. this reaction produces energy, but this Q factor measures how good you are at getting the energy out of the plasma after you've put it in. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I have... I have... Um, three more clips. I have one more clip about tokamaks. This one is about um, the future of tokamaks. So, like, where Eater is going and the next tokamak to come online. Okay. So, Eater hasn't yet turned on. No. Um, when are we hoping? 
We're hoping first plaza in 2025. Is that what I read? The baseline that ITRA is working to, that is to say the, the schedule and the cost estimates were defined in 2016. Okay. And since 2016, there has been a very significant... Uh... Yeah, something <laughs> happened in the last 12 months. What was it? Do you know what it is? <laughs> I don't know. I've been stuck at home. I haven't really been able to see anything. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I that's kind of over my head. But okay, um, it's enough. true, like the... The timeline as it stands now is 2025 um, for okay. First Plasma, um, but it will not be the next tokamak online. Um, there is another uh, tokamak also that the that the EU is um, that the EU is building jointly with Japan, um, and it's called JT6CSA, and it's located in Naka. Effectively, the machine is called JT6CSA, um, and it's been under construction for about the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a very successful project. Um, European and Japanese work, researchers have worked together very well in building this machine. Mm -hmm. um, and over the last several months, it's been going through its final assembly stages and commissioning. And it's all very exciting. Unfortunately, I mean, breaking news, um, last Tuesday, there was a very slight um, issue in, in the last commissioning steps. But uh, when JT6DSA comes online, it, it will be the largest and most sophisticated machine tokamak in the world, which is very okay. exciting. Yeah, that is very exciting. Um, it's also, I think it's perfectly, like, it's frustratingly normal to have bumps in the road, which means that things get delayed by a couple of months. So, like... Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think of the complexity of these right. machines... Yeah. And the fact that, in general, most of their component... Well, a good lot of their components are first of a kind. They've never been yeah. made before. Yeah. They've never been made on that scale or from these yeah. materials. And so many parts of a tokamak are cutting edge and so complex. So, I mean, these things happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, you consider the LHC, which had to close for two years after it turned <laughs> on for the first time. Uh, uh, Interestingly, due to a uh, superconducting magnet quench, I believe. Ah. Um, so what you were saying before about how superconducting magnets have to be cooled very to very low temperatures, um, and you have to like really keep them at like it's vital that they don't heat up quickly because otherwise you can cause a chain reaction and release huge amounts of energy and then the magnets can go flying everywhere and that's basically what happened in that. Exactly. It's a vicious circle because, you know, once they are no longer superconducting, pushing the current through them creates ohmic heating because it's encountering resistance. So yeah. the more they heat up, the more they heat up and the yeah. more they produce heat. Yeah. And like you say, you know, that can then produce force and when the magnets are huge like that, it, it can really cause destruction, so. Yeah. Less dangerous than a nuclear meltdown, but you don't want well, magnets yeah. flying all around. Right, so, I, so <laughs> I think that is actually a really important thing to say about the nuclear meltdown, that like, because you need these enormous temperatures for fusion, you can't get the runaway chain reaction that you get from fission. So you can't just have completely uncontrolled fusion creating a massive explosion. It's a magnet quench, like you don't want your magnets flying everywhere and destroying your whole building or anything like that, but like 
that shouldn't cause a big issue to human beings and, well, and it, it certainly won't cause a huge issue to human beings in surrounding towns yeah and it seems mm-hmm. like to me if you notice that your temperatures start rising you can shut it off like flip the switch stop it whereas yeah. with as my understanding of nuclear reactions and nuclear meltdowns if you can't stop it you can't just go like stop stop the nuclear reaction you can but you have to make sure that you can you yeah, but, can but you... by like insert like what you can do is you can prevent the chain reaction so in fission what happens is you get a chain reaction because one um fission reaction it uh, emits a neutron which then creates causes another t- fission reaction that creates a neutron blah blah mm-hmm. blah so if you like they have got like lead slider things right but those have to those slide neutrons. in exactly and you can't so you just can't, drop so, them in no like if you're i mean you have to be careful that like your fail safe is that those will fall that they will always fall and that they but, will stop the yeah and if they don't then yeah you're right then you're but what i'm saying is that like it seems like in this talk about yeah you can yeah. literally turn off the power instant almost instantaneously basically instantaneously yeah, in I a, mean, in yeah. A, in a fission reaction, yep. you cannot do that instantaneously because yep. if you do, you cause, well, like it can cause a meltdown. Yeah, um, yeah, you have like yes. Um, it has to be done more gradually. It still can yeah, happen within a short time much, scale. But fission is. Well, I don't want to say that fission is dangerous because that I think that gives people the wrong impression. Let's put it this way: around. fusion is. Is intrinsically more easier to con- more easy to control. Exactly. I was just doing a little little look up on tokamak detectors because I was curious, and yeah. uh, there used to be two in Canada. Um, oh really? There was one in Quebec used by Quebec Hydro. Um, oh, nice. Good for that. That one was decommissioned <laughs> in 1999, and then there is currently uh-huh. a research one at the University of Saskatchewan in huh. Saskatchewan. Very cool. That's so, cool. Yeah. And um, props to I Saskatchewan. Who knew that they had? Yeah, apparently it's the first one that demonstrated alternating current, according to Wikipedia, but there's a citation okay. needed on that. So, All right. if you know about the <laughs> Tokamak detector at the University of Saskatchewan, you can send us an email at phd32b at gmail.com and let us yeah. know. Yeah. Can't um, believe that was our first socials plug this whole episode. I know. <laughs> I also read a quick headline, and I didn't look into this, but uh, that uh, Canada has joined Ida. 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 Mm. All right. Um, All right. Go Canada. Yeah. When? It was an, uh, an October 2020 article that said oh, Canada okay. has joined Eider, but I didn't read the article because um. I was also listening to this clip. So. Okay. <laughs> what did Alice say in that clip? No, oh, I forgot. There is, there is a new Takamak coming online before yes, Eider that's right. in Japan. So, so Ida should have plasma in 2025. That's their current mm-hmm. timeline. And Japan has one that's hopefully coming online pretty soon. Yeah, it's it's cool that things are things are underway. Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. neat. And actually, looking at this list on Wikipedia, there are a lot of current and soon to be really? Takamak reactors. Yeah. Cool. Where's the um, most interesting one that you found on Wikipedia? Obviously, <laughs> the one in the University of Saskatchewan. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool because, like, I. Don't know anything about Saskatchewan or the University of Saskatchewan, so now I know something about both. Yeah. Um, the one in Japan, though, has a really long name. <laughs> JT60SA. Yeah, it's it's not as not as snappy as no. either. 
It's JT60SA, so the 60 is 60. Oh, okay. Because when you say it quickly, it sounds like it's 6TSA. Okay, I have two more clips. The right. penultimate clip mm-hmm. is um, a note about international collaboration. I mean, in a way, it's not so much necessary, but logical when you have big science projects. Yeah. You know, projects that are very large, that take a lot of money to to get off the ground. Uh, at a lot some of people point, power as well. A lot of people power. You need a lot of researchers. Sometimes there are, you know, the knowledge is not very easily found in the world. You know, yeah. you really need your cutting edge researchers. Yeah. So it it makes sense for, for people to collaborate. It's true that ITA, I mean, as well as being a huge scientific endeavor is also a very big international endeavor. You know, these seven partners representing a good half the world's population, if I'm not wrong. It's a huge international endeavor and working together, all of these countries and organizations working together to manage a project is definitely I mean, that's that's an endeavor in itself, even if you yeah. set yourself aside yeah. from all the physics and engineering problems. Yeah. Um, ITA is actually governed by the ITA Council, which meets twice a year. Before the pandemic, it used to meet in France. So there will be delegations all descending on the south of France where you have the work site for a, a few days. Life. <laughs> yeah, but now um, it's held over a video conference. Um, and of course, you have the ITA organization, which I haven't mentioned yet. Um, which is really the central body of the ITER project. Um, You have all the members and each member has their domestic agency, which procures components and delivers components and services to the site. But in the center, you have the ITER organization, um, which is an international organization that was set up by the ITER agreement and is governed by the members. So there are definitely a lot of actors. That'd be one heck of a Zoom call, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I think this is something about this kind of science that I love is mm-hmm. how international it is yeah. how cross-cultural it is and the opportunities that that gives you working in that field to interact with lots of different people yeah yeah definitely cool. okay um final words from Alice not like last words just her. <laughs> last few you comments. killed her after this interview Oh my god. <laughs> um, Alice, please. Never like... a doctor. <laughs> Never <laughs> a doctor. <laughs> the podcast where we prevent people from becoming doctors. You missed your chance. We need a doctor. No. The podcast where it would probably help if we had a doctor to save all the people. <laughs> a new true crime podcast. None of this is true. None of this is fair. Okay, let's hear from Alice. Oh, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about my work and the ETA project. It's it's exciting. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, doing what you did and going to the European Commission is not available for most of our audience. And it's available to even less of our audience than it was a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But like, there must be other opportunities in science adjacent things. Do you have words to say on? I would say so. I mean, 
I would say that what I've discovered is that even if you have a scientific background and you have a physics degree, mm-hmm. it's not really a hindrance if you then do not want to be a scientist, mm-hmm. you know, or if you're not sure. And mm-hmm. in fact, it's been very beneficial for me having a, a degree like physics, particularly going into civil service. It's not your usual background. Mm-hmm. It really sort of, it makes you stand out. And I'd say that, you know, a technical background is something you can very easily combine with other skills with communication skills with diplomatic skills with whatever else you can do to really create a a unique kind of skill set so yeah nothing but good things to say about physics degrees (laughs) i love that i think that's really nice that like she studied physics because of her interest in physics but then Mm -hmm. knew what she liked about or what she was good at writing and, and things and and found and what she enjoyed a career yeah i found a career that she enjoys and and has seems like she's doing really well I, uh, yeah that's awesome yeah i think it's really nice to think about all of the different things that you can do with with a science degree mhm mm-hmm. um, yeah i think also yeah. it's um i've noticed as i've gotten more and more specialized you know i'm in a phd program it seems like the only thing I can do after my PhD is a postdoc. Like, that's the only option. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. only thing you can do mm-hmm. is postdoc somewhere. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. And there's, and I've started to seek out opportunities. Like, just, just look and see what, yeah. what there is. And there's, there's yeah. so much that you can do. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I wanted to say as well. Like, when you go to university, at least in the UK, when I was like, at universities, there's a big push to say like this is what our graduates go on to do afterwards and like some of them go for, into further study and some of them go into work but like usually when you think of jobs that you go into a, a physics degree you think of finance you think of coding data engineering data science like these things mm-hmm. like it wouldn't have even come to my mind that things like science policy or public service was a thing that you could do with a science degree so mm. I think that's, it's just a, an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think a big yeah. thing is, is keeping an open mind and knowing what you, what you like. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And following up on your own interests. Yeah, it's similar in Canada. It's weird to think that, like, we ask 17-year-olds to, like, decide what they want to do for the rest of their lives. And, yeah. like, I never personally felt that pressure. Like, I've just always done what I found interesting. And I've just kind of like, mm-hmm. I did chemistry because it was a cool program and I liked the labs and like, I continued into this PhD because I liked the work I was doing and, and the place I was at. And so, yeah, it's just, I think keeping an open mind and, and doing what interests you is, is key. Mm, following your nose. Yeah. Following my nose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now I've just realized that I can see my nose. <laughs> Go check out our episode on color vision. I can also see your nose, Alistair. <laughs> I can't see my nose. Go check out our episode on color vision for more about how you can always see your nose at every possible moment. Yeah. Um, before the quiz, are you guys ready for a quiz? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before yes. the quiz, we should do two things. Okay. We should start by saying a massive thank you to Alice. Thank you, Alice. Yes. Yeah, Huge thank, you, thank Alice. you, Alice. It was awesome to have you on to describe this cool project and job that you're doing so thank you very much to alice we should also give the socials plug that we haven't yet given 
Alice, do you mm-hmm. want to, Alistair, do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? I know, I did just do that. <laughs> I can do it. If you have comments and would like to email us, our email is phd32b at gmail.com. That's phd32b at gmail.com. And we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at not yet a doctor. That's not yet a dr. So you can tweet us, Instagram us, or Facebook us. Yeah. Yeah. Please Lots of ways to get in touch. Like, with us. review, subscribe, send us to friends, tell mm-hmm. us what you think, get in touch. Mm-hmm. Follow us on Spotify. Actually, yeah. yeah. Please also rate and share this episode and follow us on mm-hmm. wherever you're listening because that really helps us see that we have listeners, not yeah. just mm-hmm. friends. Shouting into the void. Yeah. Okay. I love shouting into the void, to be honest. <laughs> it's my favorite place to show. Shout into the vacuum, into the cryogenic, into the cryostat. Yeah, yeah, yeah into the cryostat. I shout into the crowd a lot, don't worry. <laughs> Nobody will ever be able to hear you shout. Okay, are you guys ready for a quiz? I shout into the plasma. Yes. yes. <laughs> I shout at the plasma. I just shout straight to my computer. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, buzzers, please. Okay. Oh, does that have do a particular th- meaning, or is it just... Um, to me... That's the sound of the plasma. Okay. All right. Uh, my buzzer noise is... Okay. Which is um, the fusion reactions going on inside the <laughs> cryostat. Okay. Yeah. Um, lovely. All right. Question one, the one that you had no hints for at all. What... Yeah. Does ETA stand for? <coughs> I heard Sienna first. International Thermonuclear Energy Reactor. Three out of four. Alistair, do you want to find the mistake? International Thermonuclear... Uh, the E is so hard! <laughs> I know! European Reactor. No. European? It's, a, no. it's an international... It's... International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Oh, experimental. experimental. Oh. Okay, so uh, Sienna can have three quarters of a point. Three quarters of a point. It's like when I mark assignments and I give students like three quarters of a mark. <laughs> yeah, I'm just so close. Question two. What does Tokamak stand for in Russian? Go, Alistair. Sorry, you got to let the reaction dissipate. Um... <laughs> It's a Russian word. It comes from the Russian word for th- thermoreactor. <laughs> toroidal? Toroidal, toroidal? Toroidal. Oh, toroidal, yep. right. Yep. But I don't remember the. Any other words? Part. Colloidal. Toroidal, colloidal, colloidal. Um, <laughs> toroidal magnet? The, that's another good word. I don't do know. You want, do you want to be spoiled? Yeah. Yeah. Toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. Toroidal okay. chamber with magnetic coils. So I got coils. two out of four. Yeah, yeah, all right. I'll give you, so I'll another... give you another half a point. Um, I hope you're doing the addition because I can't. I can't I'm at 1.25 points. Alistair is at zero. I've got a steady lead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get to some numbers. How cold are the <coughs> superconducting magnets? Go, Alistair. Four Kelvin. Nice. And how hot is the plasma? Wow. <laughs> Go, Sienna. 150 million Celsius. Yeah, very good. Degrees. Now, what's that in Fahrenheit? <laughs> oh, my God. It's 
stop. Do you want to know something interesting? It's probably 150 million Fahrenheit because once you get that high of a temperature, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, because Americans. Okay, all right. Question the next. I think we're up to five. Uh, What is the name of the Japanese reactor that's about to come online? Yes, go Alistair. JT60. S-T. Close. Sienna? JP60ST. Sienna? Um, Check your letter 60T something. <laughs> All right, Alistair, I'll give you five. TS8? 60S8? No. 60SB? No, Alistair, I'll give you five out of six. The last letter <laughs> is an A. Oh. TSA, okay. JT60SA. JT60SA. Yeah, SA. the last okay. letter is an A, so I'll give uh. you... Five out of six. Five out of six. So I think I'm winning because I have five out of six and Sienna has 1.25. Yep. No, she has 2.25 and you have. But five is more than 2.25. Five out of six, which is less than two, mate. I'm sorry. (laughs) We need a mathematician on this podcast simply to tell (laughs) you. Okay, all right. One more. I think we're tied. I think this is the tiebreaker. Okay, let's make oh the. I mean, <laughs> certainly whoever wins. I feel like we always keep going just to give Alistair a chance hey, to like, make it back. That's and not it's like nice. I don't even care who wins the quiz. <laughs> I, There's no winning to me. <laughs> There's just quizzing. I don't care either. Another question, not another question. Let's do it. One more question. Let's do it. <laughs> what is your favorite? What is your favorite toroidal object? Well, obviously Montreal bagels. I think that's the ah. only answer. Mm. From good. from that one bagel shop that is not the other bagel shop. That one that isn't the other one. I can't remember the name of it. Sienna knows what I'm talking about. Does our digestive tract count as a torus? That's a good question. Wait, aren't are hum- aren't humans just donuts? No, stop! No, stop! No, stop! <laughs> Cut this out. I can't think about this right now. I, I'm seeing my I'm seeing my nose, and I'm realizing that I'm just a large donut. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to our episode today. Go and uh, give Ellison a listen. His music is what we're fading out to right now. And we hope you'll listen to us again next time. My name is Beth. My name is Alistair. And I am Sienna. Listen again next time. Bye.